Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is FolkPod. This week's guest is Happy Traum. Happy is an American folk musician who started playing music in the 1950s. He became a mainstay of the Greenwich Village music scene of the 1960s and the Woodstock music scene of the 70s and 80s. For several years, he studied blues guitar with Brownie McGee, who was a big influence on his guitar style. Happy is most famously known as one half of Happy and Artie Trom, a duo he began with his brother. Welcome, Happy. Thank you, Cheryl. Nice to see you, or hear you anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I wish. People have asked me why I don't do this with video, but I think the audio portion of this has kind of worked out. Then I would have had to brush my hair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No comment. That's funny. Uh, I so appreciate you sitting down with me for this chat. Like a lot of people that I've interviewed on this show, you and I, I think first met at the NERFA conference where I've met a lot of people. I think, so. I think if I remember correctly, I was extremely lucky to jam with you once on the stage there along with Eric Anderson. And I have to say that was a big treat and a true honor. Uh-huh. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was fun. But other than that, other than all I know about you through you know, Folk Alliance and what I've read, I actually don't know much about your beginnings as a musician. Like, I have no clue what age you might have picked up a guitar in your hands and and who got one first, yourself or your brother? How much time do you got? <laughs> <laughs> as long as you want. I grew up in New York City and um, I was very lucky to go to a school called the High School of Music and Art, which was in Manhattan. I grew up in the Bronx and the school was a very special place. It was one of, I believe there are five specialty schools, or there were, maybe there's more now, in the city that drew kids from all five boroughs. And music and art, as it, the name implies, was a school that specialized in either painting, sculpture, and the plastic arts of that type, or musicians. And I went in as an art student. I didn't know anything about music. I'd had some really failed piano lessons. That was a complete <laughs> debacle. It was terrible. Yeah. So I went in as as a student of drawing and painting. Oh, I didn't know that. What age was that? Well, I was uh, just turned 16 okay. when I went into music and art. But the school was a hotbed of kind of bohemian kids from left-wing parents who were into folk music. And in fact, in the school while I was there, Peter Yarrow was in a class just ahead of me, hmm. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yep. Eric Weisberg, who later did dueling banjos and, and many, many other things, was Judy Collins, a companyist for many years and a fantastic multi-instrumentalist. He was at the school at the same time. Felix Papillardi, who was later in the band Mountain and was a, also a fantastic musician, was there. And then there were all these other kids that were just enthusiasts of folk music. So I saw kids in the park. There's a park right outside the school and kids would be playing songs and playing guitars and singing. At some point, some of them said, hey, why don't you come with us to Brooklyn? We're going to a Pete Seeger concert. Mm -hmm. First of all, I was from the Bronx, so Brooklyn was like foreign country to me. But, <laughs> yeah. but we all got on the subway and we went to a Pete Seeger concert and it proceeded to totally blow my mind. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, my God. I mean, 
all I knew about music was what I heard on the radio, and that was Perry Como and <laughs> Doris Day and yeah. Patty Page and all these yeah. pop artists that were accompanied by orchestras, basically. And how much is this doggy in the window? Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked that music. That was fine. That was what I knew. But he was this guy with a banjo all by himself on a stage getting maybe 12 or 1,500 people singing along with him on all these songs that just were amazing to me. So the next thing I did was I went out and I got a guitar. So you got a guitar before you got a banjo, right? Yeah, I did. But I got a banjo a couple of years later. Okay. And then started finding my way to Washington Square Park where there was a weekly yep. music gathering of like-minded acoustic musicians, bluegrass, Pete Seeger-inspired folk, Calypso in those days, all kinds of music, old-timey music, politically-based songs. And I just proceeded to meet all these people, Dave Van Ronk and <laughs> Mike Seeger and Tom Paley and uh, Eric Darling and all these folkies. And that was my sort of home away from home every Sunday for many years. Were you self-taught on the guitar before that, or did you actually take lessons before that? Well, I took some lessons with a guy named Walter Rame, who was a, both a folky and a studio musician. Okay. And he taught me the basic chords pretty much. And then I pretty much picked up things from some other kids in the school at Music and Art who were playing and yeah. kids in Washington Square. And, you know, I became friendly with Dave Van Rock. Yeah. We started playing together. And a very good friend of mine, Dick Weissman, who is mostly a banjo player, also played guitar. He and I started playing together. Barry Kornfeld, another wonderful hmm. banjo and guitar player, became very close friends. And then I learned how to finger pick from Tom Paley. And they were just a plethora of people that I could hang out with and learn from. You were at the right place at the right time. I was very much. Talk about on-the-job training. I mean, just hanging out with the cool kids and learning from them. And wow, that's amazing. This was something that had started in Washington Square mid-50s. Yeah, I know a lot of people who hung out there through the 60s, through the 70s, and incredible scene. Right. And this was the early days of that. And it was really like being in, in a club. And nobody ever thought of this as anything you could make any money from or be a <laughs> right. professional. It was purely for fun, purely for the love of playing and the community and the fellowship and all that kind of thing. So that's basically where I got my start. It was huh. in Washington Square and then some of the surrounding events that sure. were taking place. And there was a folk scene. There was a little bit of a club coffee house scene. Sure. But this was just before the bitter end and the Gertie's Folk City and the Gaslight and all those things. It's before all that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, at this point, you had not taken lessons from Brownie McGee yet. That's right. You sort of got involved with Sis and Gord and the whole broadside scene at that point? I did a little bit, but that was in the very early 60s. After I got out of music and art, I went to NYU. And when I was at NYU... I had been listening to this fabulous little 10-inch Folkways LP called Brownie McGee Blues. And it was Brownie solo. I had heard, already heard him play with Sonny Terry and Reverend Gary Davis, who were frequent players around the village in different little small concerts and things. But when I heard this Brownie McGee Blues record, I just thought, I got to learn how to do that. So a friend of mine said, well, you know, he lives in New York. Why don't you look him up and maybe he'll give you lessons? And this was like 
the scariest thing I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember to this day being in the student union at NYU, and this was when it was up in the Bronx. Oh, okay. It wasn't down in the village. They had that, but their main campus in those days was in the Bronx. Okay. And I went to the student union, and I got one of those phone books that were hanging <laughs> on a chain. And, <laughs> you know, I put my dime in, and I looked up, and there in the phone book, looking through all the McGee's, and it was Walter Brown McGee. Wow. And I just thought that's got to be him. Wow. So I very nervously called him up and there was his voice unmistakably on the on the line. And I said, Mr. McGee, I just love your record and I love your playing and I'd love to take some lessons from you. And he just said, well, if you come down, let me hear you play and I'll see what huh. I can do. And that started a relationship. Had he taught students before or, or was this something new for him? He had. Okay. It turned out, I didn't even know this, but he had something called Brownie McGee's School of the Blues oh. early in the 50s. I didn't know anybody that went to that. Okay. So he was kind of a teacher already. His teaching style was more like you sort of play with him and try to keep up and then you <laughs> stop him if you don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Or he would stop you and say, you're speeding up, or you got to keep your thumb going. He would criticize what you were doing. Amazing. But very gently. If you hadn't made that phone call, your life might have been a little different. If you had chickened out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I still would have been playing the guitar, but what he taught me was, was so valuable to me. And I still use it every day. Oh, yeah. You can tell. And we ended up writing a book together. About 20 years later, we wrote a book called The Guitar Styles of Brownie McGee. So that was kind of nice. Oh, comes full circle, eh? That's amazing. Yeah. That must have been quite something to do that with him. What a great relationship you had, and I know that relationship lasted until his passing. Yeah, it lasted quite a while. He moved to California at some point, I think maybe the early 70s or mid-70s. So we did visit him out in Oakland a couple of times, but we didn't see much of him. I did run into him at gigs, you know, festivals, and he came to Woodstock several times, played in Woodstock. So I would always go and hang out with him. That's awesome. At the clubs he was playing here in Woodstock. You know, my lessons with him, sometimes, at least one time, I remember Sonny Terry came up and sat in on the lesson and played along with his harmonica. Wow. I mean, what could be better than that? <laughs> oh, my God. That was about as good as it got. Yeah. It fascinates me how people get into the blues as they do. And I'll say it. It always fascinates me when white people get into the blues did you guys ever talk about that? I actually made tapes with Brownie, hmm. which I only found maybe 15 years ago or so. I made a whole bunch of tapes, both of his lessons and of me asking questions like, can white people sing the blues? And those yeah. kinds of things. <laughs> See, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. I did talk to him about that in the 50s. So I was like 18, 19 years old or something. Wow. And asking him those kinds of questions. What did he say? He was very accommodating. He was a sophisticated guy, even though he grew up in rural Tennessee. Hmm. He came out of difficult circumstances, but he came to New York in the 40s and quickly became fairly sophisticated. So he knew how to answer questions like that. And it was like, if you feel that you can play it, if, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, it's what you feel, not who you are, you know, those kinds of mm -hmm. answers, which I think were, in retrospect, maybe a little pat, but... Right. He was good at making me feel better about trying to play this music. <laughs> and to this day, I feel like I pick and choose when I play a blues song very carefully and make sure that it's a song that I can really relate to. That's pretty amazing. And I also don't, I've never tried to make myself sound like a black person. Right. Because it just doesn't work. Yeah. 
So would you actually give us a snippet of something you might play? One of his, one of yours? Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I'll play one of Brownie's songs. Okay. This might be his most famous. Actually, he wrote wonderful songs, and I know many of them. This is called Sporting Life Blues. I'll just do a verse or two, and I'll play maybe a a little instrumental that he might have. Awesome. The way he might have played it. Um, and he had this kind of a a turnaround that was almost like a signature. He would go... You know, I'm tired of running around. Think I'll get married and settle down. This old nightlife, this old sporting life, it's killing me. I got a letter from my home Most of my friends are dead and gone It'll make you wonder Friends, it'll make you worry About days to come He might have played something like this I love it. Thank you for doing that. That's awesome. So you're (laughs) hanging out with the best of the best. Were you actually going to school to study to do something other than music? You know, I went to NYU and I graduated with a degree in English literature. Oh, did you? Yeah. Were you going to teach? That was the idea. If I couldn't make it as a musician, I would have been a teacher. And actually, the teaching part really did come through. I started teaching guitar almost after I learned how to play. (laughs) I was still going to college when I was teaching people how to play guitar and going to summer camps and being a folk music counselor at a summer camp. Any time that I was not making any money going out and playing, I was teaching. That's awesome. I should step back and say, after I graduated from NYU, Jane and I got married like a month later. Right. And (laughs) how was I going to make a living? She was still in school. So I just started teaching guitar. Were you already up in Woodstock then, or were you still in New York? We were living in Manhattan. Yeah. Okay. We lived in Manhattan for about seven years before we moved to Woodstock. I'd have people come up to the apartment, or I had a little studio in the village that I was teaching at, and I would go out to Long Island, different places, and teach classes. And huh. So I was pretty much a guitar teacher for the first few years. Until I joined, in 1962, I joined a group called the New World Singers. Right. Wow. And that was sort of the first time I actually was in a professional music group. Pretty good one to be in. Yeah, that's a whole other (laughs) saga. That's where I met Bob Dylan, who was through Gil Turner, who was the lead singer and kind of the leader of that group. Gil was the one who invited me to be part of it, and he and Bob were friends Right up from around the time Bob arrived in the city in 1961. Right. So through Gil, I met Bob, and we became pretty good friends in the early days. And Bob used to show up at our New World Singers gigs when we played Gertie's Folk City or 
bitter end and places like that. And then you ended up recording with him. And I know that you've recorded the guitar part for the first version of Blowing in the Wind. Is that right? Yeah, the first version, first recorded version ever was the New World Singers on a record called Broadsides, which was a benefit for Broadsides magazine, which at the time was publishing songs of the young singer-songwriters who were writing mostly political yep. things. Gordon and Sis, who ran Broadsides, were very political leftists. Yep. Talk to Sonny about that Yeah, with Phil and, and, of course, Eric. Yeah, exactly. And so Phil Oaks and Tom Paxton and Peter Lafarge and Buffy St. Marie and all these people who were coming around the village and suddenly being topical songwriters. And the New World Singers, well, we had some original songs in our group, but we were mainly singing songs of some of these other people. Our repertoire was, we'd always have a Phil Oak song, a Tom Paxton song, a, different people who were writing back in those days would become huh. part of our repertoire. Amazing. So that was a fun time playing around the village and then traveling up to Toronto and Montreal and various other places, Philadelphia. And we went to the Midwest. We never got to California with that group, but it lasted two and a half years, three years or something before I felt the need to leave. Is that when or about the time you started playing with your brother? A little later. My brother was five years younger than me, so he naturally started a little later, yeah. but quickly became a way better musician than me. And we actually started around 1967. We moved to Woodstock okay. from New York. By that time, and we had three kids, yeah, all little obviously. And we were just tired of the hassles of living in New York. So we knew friends. We had friends. I mean, of course, Bob Dylan and yeah. very good friend, Johnny Harold had been in the Greenbrier Boys and was a very dear friend and a guy named Billy Fair. What was John Harold like to play music with or hang out with? He's such a brilliant man. Oh my God. He was fabulous. He was such high energy and good feeling when he played. I mean, yeah. I love the Greenbrier Boys records to this day. And of course, we were in a group together for quite a few years later on. I mean, this is a 60-year story. I love listening to stories. <laughs> but I'll cut to the chase. So we moved to Woodstock mostly because of John Harold, a banjo player named Billy Fair, who we uh -huh. met in New York, but who also was living in Woodstock. And then Bob Dylan and other people in that milieu were living here. So we moved here, and my brother moved here shortly afterwards. And that's pretty much when our duo career started. And we put together a little band and got through Albert Grossman, who was Bob Dylan's and Janis Joplin's and Peter Paul. I wanted to ask you about that. So I know that as a duo, Rolling Stone magazine called you is having defined the Northeast folk music style, you and Artie. The rest of us just have to say thank you. Oh, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, we were very influenced by the band yeah. and by Dylan and by that whole scene and some other Woodstock artists, but also the people that we had met in the village and traditional musicians and all that stuff. And so yeah. we started writing our own material, my brother more than me. And Albert Grossman got us a deal with Capitol Records, which was really a big deal. And sure. the band was on Capitol. Yeah. So we were kind of in the big time for about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so Albert Grossman was your manager. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. What was that like? He liked us a lot. We were friends with him. He liked what we did. He wasn't very hands-on day to day. 
his office kind of mostly sent us out as opening act for Gordon Lightfoot, Tom Rush, the band, Paul Butterfield Blues Band. We were opening acts for mm. a lot of bigger names. Okay. And we were also getting gigs. In those days, you could make a living playing at colleges and universities. Yeah. So we were going up and down the East Coast playing at every state university gymnasium. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. we were playing every weekend. We were going out three or four gigs a weekend. We had a little band with Eric Kaz and a bass player named Tony Brown. And we had a variety of people that played with us. Arlen Roth played with us for a while. And Debbie Green, you probably knew Debbie. Yeah. Eric's wife. Yeah. She was in our band for a while. And Was she? Yeah. Now, did she sing with you at all or just play bass? She sang a little bit, played keyboards, occasionally played bass. But she was just a friend. I think she came along for the laughs. <laughs> we were just good friends. Didn't she have a beautiful voice, though? Oh, yeah. Beautiful. I got to hear a tape of her at Club 47. So we're talking like 1957 or 58. Oh, wow. Yeah. She was in Cambridge. Yep. It's a found tape somebody had and got it to Eric. And it's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. Mm. It predates Joan Baez coming out, you know, and all that. Mm -hmm. And then I got to meet her just before she passed away in L.A. and got to hang out with her. and. Right. She actually asked me to lay down some percussion for their daughter. So getting to work with her in the studio for like even 15 minutes was amazing. It was amazing. Oh, nice. nice. Great experience. Yeah, she was wonderful. So my brother and I had this, we had our band for a number of years. You wrote your own music and you say he kind of wrote more. Did you share one write music, the other lyrics? Did you talk about it? Did you just walk in with songs? Well, we wrote two or three songs together, and the rest were either his or mine. I loved your harmonies. Your harmonies were beautiful. Yeah, thanks. I just loved playing with him. And even though our professional lives sort of went different directions after maybe in the late 70s, mm -hmm. but we played together until pretty much till he passed in 2008. Yeah. But he was more into sort of smooth jazz kind of sound. Oh, okay. He was a more advanced player in some ways than me. I stuck pretty much to traditional styles, finger picking and blues and that kind of stuff. Hmm. Can you talk about some of the songs that you guys wrote together? We wrote a song called Trials of Jonathan for our first record. I couldn't even tell you what it's about, and I haven't played it in so long. <laughs> Had a really nice guitar lick. I might even be able to... Let's see... Won't be 
it was actually a lot of fun. We went to Nashville. We made our first record in Nashville in 1970. So Nashville was like wide open. You know, we got to play with those hot Nashville pickers. Oh, wow. We went down there with Eric Kaz and Artie and I and yep. a bass player named Michael Esposito, who had been in the Blues Magoos and then played with us for a few years. So we made two records for Capitol. Right. And then left the big time and went to Rounder, <laughs> which suited us a lot more. Yeah. I should just step back because something was going on through all of this that I should mention, really. Just before and during the time we moved to Woodstock, Jane and I started this company called Homespun Tapes. Yep. Because I had been teaching guitar and started going on the road with Artie and was leaving a lot of my students in the lurch because I was out of town. So I started making these tapes for them individually. And then I realized, what am I doing? This is crazy. I'm making the same tapes over and over again. It's taking me hours to do each one. Wow. So why don't I just record one set of tapes and send it to everybody? Right. So I did that. I made a series of 12 tapes. Also, I should say, I had already written about half a dozen guitar instruction books. Yeah. I mean, I'm skipping over so much stuff because it's just a lot. I know. And I was going to ask you, now it's homespun music instruction. It has continued right. all this time. Yeah, right. There's no tapes involved. <laughs> but it blows my mind because you started it then, it continued. But I mean, now you're doing it online. You've embraced the right. online world and you're teaching online and showing licks and yeah. stuff. It's really amazing people. You got to go online and find Happy Trom. Yeah, it's homespun.com. We actually started with reel-to-reel -reel tapes and copying them from one machine to another. Oh, wow. And then Jane would package them and bring them to the post office. And <laughs> Good Lord. We'd photocopy the handwritten tablature with it and you know all that stuff. It was so homemade. And that's how <laughs> Jane came up with the name Homespun. You know, eventually cassettes came in a couple of years later. That was a big deal. <laughs> a big deal, right? <laughs> and then after cassettes, of course, in the early 80s, then video came in, videotapes. Right. That changed the picture entirely. So you actually made videotapes and sent them out to people? Oh, yeah. We packaged the same way. We bought duplicating machines. We had other companies duplicating for us. Wow. We had to reinvent ourselves over and over again. And then when DVDs came in... yeah. We thought, oh, DVDs, that sounds interesting. We probably have five or six years before people are... <laughs> I'm telling you, we had several hundred lessons by that time, maybe two or 300 lessons. We had one year to change everything over from physical analog oh, God. videotapes to digital DVDs. And it was just a huh. mammoth, mammoth job. How many students did you have at that point? How many were you sending out? I'm not sure. Over the years, I mean, it's been hundreds of thousands probably, but yeah. at one time, yeah, probably 10,000 or something. I mean, we didn't send out 10,000 tapes. No, no, no. We'd send out catalogs. We used to print 20,000 physical catalogs a month wow. and wow. send them out every month to all these people. And now, of course, it's all emails and yep. downloads and streaming and all that stuff. And there's no physical product involved. Isn't that nice? <laughs> it's very nice. Do you still like doing it? I do. In fact, I just made a, a new single song video lesson that I'm going to put up online pretty soon. And <laughs> we have a little studio now. We can do it sort of a real do-it-yourself kind of deal. And we have other people that are yep. still making tapes for us. And our son, Adam, 
He's also a great musician, folks. Yeah, yeah very good guitar player and songwriter. And, songwriter yeah. and he's a big part of our company now because he does all our editing and putting the pieces together and getting them up online and all that stuff. He's good at that kind of thing, as well as making lessons for us. So, so Jane and I are still involved, even after all these mm. years. It's been more than half a century, if you can imagine. Wow. No. <laughs> so that's a big part of our lives. And that's the teaching that started when I was still in college. You know, I'll learn a new song. And uh, the first thing I think of when even while I'm learning the song is, let's see, how can I break this down so I can teach it to somebody else? Wow, you're so cool. <laughs> Somehow it's sort of built in. Yeah. I don't even know why that is. I think it's amazing. We're so lucky to have you. Guitarists all over the world are extremely lucky to have you. <laughs> Thanks. I have an interesting question for you. Okay. You've worked with some incredible musicians, you know, John Sebastian, oh, yeah. Larry Campbell, Paul Butterfield, obviously Bob Dylan. Do you like being a backup musician or front man more? I've been a backup musician over the years, but I don't think I'm really good enough to be a really good backup musician. I think I'm better doing my own thing and getting great people to back me up, make me look better. <laughs> cool, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are people like John Sebastian, who's a very, very dear friend, who I think has been on just about every record I've ever made. Oh, has he? And Larry Campbell, oh. same thing. And yeah. Larry Campbell and Roly Sally and I had a little band together in the early 80s, and we toured Europe together. And I should also mention the Woodstock Mountains Review, which actually started in 1972. We made a record for Rounder called Mud Acres, Music Among Friends. And they were all people who had gravitated to Woodstock at that point. Hmm. So we had the great banjo player, Bill Keith, and Jim Rooney. Hmm. Bill Keith and Rooney were a duo at the time, and Jim, fantastic country singer and rhythm guitarist. And Johnny Harold. Oh, yeah. Maria Muldar. Nice. Who was living here at the time and was part of the group. Eric Kaz, who was a wonderful songwriter and actually now a very highly successful songwriter and he played harmonica and keyboards a great group of people so we made this record for rounder which to this day people tell me they still listen to it all the time they first mud acres record hmm. and then about five years later we all regathered here in woodstock and put out a record called woodstock mountains morning blues with the naked head that I wished I'd used. I looked in the mirror nearly died of fright. These morning blues is worse than ten last nights. I got the morning blues. Oh, so bad. Honey, come and hug me. They're the worst I've ever had. was with the original core group, but we added Pat Alger, who had moved to Woodstock, and he's a fantastically successful songwriter and a great guitar player and singer. Right. And Eric Anderson joined our group and was on our yep. record. Rory Block. Oh, wow. Paul Siebel, 
Bernie Ledden, who had just had left the Eagles, and he joined us on, it was called Woodstock Mountains, More Music from Mud Acres. Okay. And that was a fantastic record, too. And Roly Sally, the bass player, actually sang his composition, Killing the Blues. Where do you record when you're obviously recording in Woodstock? That one was recorded at Bearsville Studios, which is now no longer in existence. Okay. Bearsville Studios was owned by Albert Grossman. Oh, okay. It was kind of one of the premier studios of the day. So anyway, we put together a little core group and we toured with it. We went to Japan together. We had our European tour. It was just total fun. Nobody made any money, but it was totally <laughs> just laughs. Wasn't going to ask. Yeah, no, but... <laughs> no, no money, no money. Yeah, but what a great experience. It was a great experience. Touring around Europe with Bill Keith at the wheel of his van, and all of us jammed into this <laughs> van all through England. And it was the first of many times that I went to Europe. I also went as a solo player with Larry Campbell and Roly Sally. We toured a couple of times in Europe, Spain, and Switzerland, and France, and all those places. Wow. So it's been a very colorful life in some ways, and through it all, I managed to stay with Jane and who's lovely, yeah. Raised three great kids and four grandkids now, and and you're still playing. I'm still playing, you know. COVID has taken my calluses away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you what the last two years has been like. Have you written anything at all? I've mostly been doing my online teaching stuff, and I've been learning stuff. I'm not writing songs particularly, but I made a very nice arrangement of Jay Unger's Ashokan Farewell" recently. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. also did Danny Boy. Yeah, I've been doing that kind of thing, making some nice guitar arrangements of things. Absolutely beautiful. Oh, thanks. Yeah. They're beautiful. It just looks stunning. It sounds stunning. Oh, thanks. Yeah. We do that in our little studio here in Woodstock. Yeah. And then Adam edits it. Really, really nice. Folks, check that out. Yeah. I have to ask you this question. I have to ask you this question. I kept saying, okay, I'm not going to ask it. <laughs> I've never asked you in person, so I'm just going to ask you here for everybody. Where did your name come from? Who gave it to you? How did it stick? Ah, uh, okay. Or are you not allowed to say? <laughs> no, my legal birth certificate name is Harry. I don't think I could call you that. I used to say that the only people that called me Harry were school teachers and the police. Right, exactly. When you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But now it's not school teachers anymore, obviously, but medical people, you know, everything has to be. Oh, it has to be the legal name. Yeah, it has to be the legal name. Right. And I never changed it legally. But when I was an infant, supposedly somebody who was helping my mom take care of me started calling me happy and my mother started calling me happy. And that's all my parents ever called me. They never called me Harry. Really? No, never. That's amazing, actually. And even just growing up, I could always tell who the kids in school were who knew me from school only or who knew me from the street. Because the kids that knew me from the street called me happy, but anybody <laughs> in school called me Harry because that's what the school teachers called me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'll sort of reluctantly answer to Harry. And I like that name. And I have friends named Harry who I love, you know. You're right. But it doesn't register with me. If somebody calls me Harry, I sort of look around and say, who are they, who are they talking about? <laughs> right. It's kind of cool that it stuck with both your parents. Yeah, both of my parents, everybody in my family, all my cousins, everybody. <laughs> so it's kind of my name, even though it's not legally my name. 
I love it. Thanks for sharing the story. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the COVID thing has been rough. I've had to cancel a lot of things. Yeah. There was a little opening last summer. Yes. Where things seemed to be getting better. And I did a couple of festivals and a couple of outdoor. Yeah, me too. It's like a tease, isn't it? Yeah. But now I've canceled everything until late spring. And then I'll see what that brings. So you do want to go back out and intend to, I hope. In a limited way. I've gotten to the point in my life where I just want to play the things that sound like they'll be fun. Yep. That's okay. I'm in a very privileged position in that way Yeah, because I have my business, which means I don't have to go out and be on the road all the time to bring in the food money. Right. Yeah. So it's very nice. That continues. And we work, Jane and I both work very hard keeping homespun current. Mm -hmm. Even after all these years, we have a very nice, very loyal following. So we try to keep that fresh. Do you have other teachers, not just oh, you? Oh, yeah. We have hundreds. Yeah, yeah. I have probably 250 instructors on Homespun. I mean, some of them very famous folkies like Pete Seeger, wow. Peggy Seeger, John Sebastian, and Paul Butterfield, and Bill Monroe, and Sonny Osborne, who just passed. I mean, sadly... Um, we have banjo players, Bela Fleck and Tony Trishka, oh, wow. and wow. it just goes on and on. We have Donald Fagan teaches piano. and What? <laughs> yeah. That's great. Many of the people who started out as homespun musicians, we stayed good friends with. So that's sort of another benefit of being part of that. Sam Bush, the great Sam Bush, has become a very dear friend wow. over the years. Jerry Douglas and all these wonderful bluegrass artists. Well, check it out, everybody. Homespun.com. I was just going to say, having Pete Seeger do a video for us was one of the highlights of my life. Because as you remember it from way back when we were talking at the beginning of this conversation, Pete was the reason I got into this music in the first place. And then becoming friends with him. Oh, by yeah. the way, we're also the publishers of his timeless banjo book, How to Play the Five-String Banjo. He turned that over to us as his publishers. Oh, I didn't know that. Around okay. 20 years ago. Total honor. Wow. He entrusted us with this legacy of this incredible book. What an honor. And so we've been keeping it in print and circulating as best we can. We're endlessly grateful to him. What a great human being. No kidding. We're very lucky to have had him while we were around. That's what I say. Absolutely. Would you consider doing another tune for us? Sure. This is a song I learned from the playing of Blind Willie McTell. Okay. And it's unusual. I wouldn't even touch some of his stuff. It's just too crazy, complex, and deep. But but this one, it's a song I just fell in love with, and it's called In the Wee Midnight Hour. I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, but if it's late at night, it's perfect for <laughs> listening late at night. And um, I did this on my whenever will be released CD <laughs> okay. with Jeff Muldar, another dear friend, singing a harmony part to this. Wow. So I'm eager to get it out just because he's such an amazing singer to have him yeah. singing with me was really a treat. And Cindy Cashtaller plays Dobro on it. And Oh, wow. Oh, I can't wait for this to come out. There's a lot of great people on this record and it'll be fun when it finally comes out. But this is in the wee midnight hour. <laughs> In the wee minute hour, 
Long about the break of day Of day, of day It was in the wee midnight hour Long about the break of day Of day, of day That's when the blues creep down on you drum wow unreleased material just for folk pod listeners ha <laughs> mm-hmm. 
That was pretty cool. Thank you for doing that. Well, you wrote it? I know I learned it. I learned it from uh, a William McTell record, yeah. But of course, I made up my own way of doing it. I love it. Thank you so much. Okay, tell the Folk Pod listeners. I always ask this question, and if you haven't listened to any of the other episodes, you have no idea this is coming. So tell the listeners something crazy, cute, adorable, funny, silly about yourself that nobody would ever know. Ooh. Yikes. <laughs> That's a trick question there. Yep. Well, how about I'm addicted to police procedurals. <laughs> what? Like um, detective series. Oh, okay, okay. On TV. Not from like experience or anything. No, 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 no. On TV. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Especially during COVID. We were spending hours and hours watching endless yeah. British and Nordic noir. Really? Like Line of Duty and those kinds of TV shows. You feel like you could personally go out there and solve a case right now? Oh, easy. <laughs> 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 oh, sure. I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for being on this show and for chatting with me and introducing yourself to the audience because I know there's going to be a lot of people that don't know about you and your music. And I love the fact that you have no sign of slowing down anytime soon, which is great for the rest of us. Oh, good. Yeah. Where can people find you online? Well, you can find me at homespun.com or on happytram.com. I have my own personal website. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, at the moment, I don't have any gigs to post on there, but you will. I will hopefully at some point. And a new album. There will be a new CD. And of course, I have a CD that I made about four or five years ago, which you probably have heard because that's when I was at yeah, at Nerfa. when I was at Focal Alliance the last time. Yeah. And it's called Just for the Love of It. Mm -hmm. It got four stars from Rolling Stone, so that was pretty cool. That's always nice. And I have some really great players on it with me. David Amram's on it with me, Larry Campbell, John Sebastian, of course, Martin Simpson from England. My son Adam plays on one song with me. Yeah. It's gotten better notices than almost anything I've ever done, or at least since the days that I was playing with Artie. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Love, oh, love. They call it careless love. I said love, oh, careless love Love, love, they call it careless love Don't you see what careless love has done? What it do? The new one that will be probably out maybe hopefully later this year also has some great artists and Cindy Cash Dollars all over it. And she's a dear friend and a wonderful player, wonderful musician too. The best. Very nice. We're looking forward to that coming out and you getting back on the road. One other thing I should just mention yeah. is that I was had a great honor this year in that I got my first signature guitar. Oh, I just literally saw that. Yeah. The Santa Cruz Guitar Company from California, which is the premier small builder shop. There are quite a lot of small shops around the country. Many of them are really excellent. And this is one of the great ones, I think. Came to me last year and said that they want to do a signature model and they asked me to design something. And I put together some ideas for them of what I would like to see and the kinds of decorations and stuff. And 
It's just gotten the most rave reviews from uh, guitar magazines, like Guitar Player Magazine and Acoustic Guitar. It could not have been better. So Love it. Yay. Do you have one? Did they send you one? Oh, I got two of them. Yeah. Oh, how do they sound? And that's what I was just playing. Oh, that's what you were playing. Fantastic. Oh, it's the best guitar I've ever played. Oh. It's really fabulous. There you go, folks. Wow. So I'm just thrilled and it's beautiful looking. So I just thought I'd mention that Santa Cruz is just such a great Thank you. Yeah. company. And I love the company. And Richard Hoover, who's the main owner and luthier of that company, is just a dear friend. And Yeah. And congratulations. That's a wonderful honor. Yeah. And it is a beautiful guitar, folks. You have to go take a peek. It's on Facebook. If you look for me on Facebook, you'll find it. Gorgeous. Find Happy's music wherever you can and make sure to go see him live because it's always fun. And thank you so much for sitting down and chatting. I know we could chat about two hours worth of stuff more. <laughs> <I know. laughs> but thank you so much for sharing with us. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to FolkPod. Thank you. Happy, I have a huge favor to ask. Mm -hmm. This is a big one. And I know you've taken songs and you've done beautiful guitar arrangements, but is there any way you can do a version of Happy Birthday? Because it's Shauna's oh. in a few hours. Oh, sure. <laughs> That's a crazy request. That's very sweet, Cheryl. It's awesome. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't even ask him before, so I'm putting you on the spot. Okay, here. Let's see if I can finger pick something. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday, Shauna. Thank you. Now I can blow out the candles. That's wonderful. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. FolkPod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to FolkPod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The FolkPod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.